Well, the beauty of expository preaching, verse by verse, preaching through the Bible, is that when you don't finish one week, you can just pick up where you left off the next week. And that's what we're doing today. So take your Bibles, open them to Mark chapter 4 again. We're going to be revisiting the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4. And I'd always intended on spending two weeks on this parable, but last week, I don't know if you could tell, it didn't end as planned. I was looking at the clock, we were out of time, looking at my notes. I had a lot more notes. And so I just decided to set the plane down, although a little quickly. It's like when a pilot realizes he's out of gas and doesn't have, he's not going to make it to the airport he intended to, so he just finds the closest one and just gets the plane down. That's kind of what we did last week. But the good news is we're not in a rush. We can always come back the next week. And so here we are, we've refueled, we're, we're ready to go again. So we're going to pick up where we left off from last time and then try and finish this out, the parable of the sower or the soils. But to do that, especially for those who weren't here last week, I want to get you up to speed pretty quickly. And if last week was an abrupt landing, this will be a a hasty takeoff. But I want to get us back up to 40,000 feet as quick as possible. So without saying a whole lot more by way of introduction, I want us just to get to Mark chapter 4 and uh, pick up where we left off. But first, we're going to reread the parable of the soils as told by Jesus and then see it explained like we did last week. and, And that should catch us up to speed. So we're revisiting the parable of the soils. Look at Mark chapter 4, verse 1. We find Jesus, and it says, He began to teach again by the sea. And such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. This lakeside teaching takes place on a very busy day for Jesus. This is the same day where his family, they came to him earlier in the day to try and take him away, thinking that he had lost his senses. And also Jesus, it's the same day where he rebuked the Pharisees after they claimed he was possessed by Satan. We studied that passage as well. So after dealing with his family, after dealing with the scribes and Pharisees, he goes off to the the shore of the Sea of Galilee and he begins to teach. Only this time his teaching is different than before. He begins to extensively teach in parables. Like verse 2 says, and he was teaching them many things in parables. Here we're introduced to the parable teaching of Jesus. He had taught in parables here and there a little bit, but not like this, not like this before so extensively. And we could say parables are like earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. They're kind of like metaphors or analogies, but they're much more enigmatic. They're almost like riddles. And they contain, if you have eyes to see them, deep spiritual truths. And the first parable that Jesus taught on this afternoon was the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils. And let's, let's see this as he begins teaching it in verse 3. He was teaching them many things in parables and he was saying to them in his teaching, verse 3, Listen to this, behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns and the thorns came and choked it and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced 30, 60, 
and a hundredfold. So on the surface, it's an interesting story about a sower, a farmer. You could see one easily turning it into a skit that children would understand and enjoy. You've got a sower scattering some seed. Some seed falls on bad soil and doesn't bear fruit. Some seed falls on good soil and bears a great harvest. I mean, we get this. We know this is not earth-shattering to us. We know how this works. At our new house, there are these planter beds on either side of the driveway. And when we got there, we wanted to, to plant in them, but we immediately knew it was not going to be possible because the previous owner or renter or whoever had laid down this really thick landscape fabric, and then on top of that, piled on this thick layer of these tiny little landscape rocks, and nothing's ever going to grow there. It's just It's not possible. And we knew we had to get that out and put in some good soil if anything was ever going to grow. So we get what Jesus is saying. We, we're not, you know, we're city folk. We're not farmers, I think, most of us. But we understand what's going on here. It's not quite groundbreaking news. But Jesus himself clues us in that there's more going on here than meets the eye. There, there's a deeper layer to this parable. Like he says in verse 9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, I'm pretty sure everybody that was listening to Jesus that day had a pair of ears. Pretty sure. I think most likely they all had ears. And they all heard him teach. But there, there was a deeper spiritual perception that was needed to really catch the significance of this parable. And this brings us to the explanation of the parable. First, we hear Jesus just tell it. That's verses 1 through 9. And then he, we find him explaining it. Even the disciples later that day asked Jesus what this parable meant. And Mark fast forwards us to the time when Christ is alone with his disciples and he gives them the inside scoop. Here, here's what this really means. And he paints the picture for us in, in more detail. So let's look at this now. We, we've seen the parable told. Now the parable explained. This is still recap, but let's look at verse 14. And read these verses again to see the parable explained by Jesus. The parable explained starting at verse 14. He says, The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they heard the word, immediately received it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. 30, 60, and a hundredfold. Well, thankfully, Jesus himself identifies what represents what in this parable. And it begins with the seed. The seed is the word, the word of God, the, the gospel of the kingdom. And the sower, he's spreading this message around. He's preaching the gospel, letting the kingdom be known. 
And the gospel, it's a message, message of salvation. And to be saved, it must be believed. But to be believed, it must be heard. But to be heard, it has to be preached. And that's why you need a sower. The sower sows the seed. He preaches the word, spreads the gospel. That being said, the emphasis of this parable, though, it's very clear. Just a few words describe the seed. No identification is given of the sower, but almost the entire thing is devoted to telling us about the soil and how the soil impacts the results. The emphasis is clearly on the soil. There are four different soils here representing four different people or really heart responses to the gospel. These soils and their response uh, to the seed typify how people respond to the gospel. And the obvious point is that one's heart condition determines the nature of their response. Now let's, still by way of recap, let's, let's look at these four soils and, and what they represent. And first comes the hard heart. This person has been given over to their sin for so long that their hearts have become hardened, like a concrete sidewalk. They have so killed their conscience through sin that the things of God have no impact. Yet sometimes, as local sidewalks prove, the seed can get through, find the crack, and still bear fruit. There is power in God's seed, and, and sometimes the seed can even penetrate the hardened heart. But Satan knows this as well. And so man's great spiritual enemies, Satan and by extension demons and, and all of that, they're pictured as birds working to remove the seed from a person's heart, keeping them from even contemplating and considering the gospel which they just heard. And so we find that the first seed faces a double threat, both the hardened heart and spiritual enemies at work to keep this from bearing fruit. And the first seed indeed does not bear fruit. Second comes the shallow heart. The shallow heart, unlike the seed, or rather unlike the seed beside the road, these people immediately receive the word with joy. The message, it sounds great. I mean, who wouldn't want eternal life? It's like with kids. You go into Sunday school and you tell kids, hey, if you want to go to heaven, which is great, and you want to avoid hell, which is really bad, all you have to do is believe in Jesus. Just by a show of hands, who, who wants to believe in Jesus? And they all raise their hand. I mean, who wouldn't? But such people don't realize the cost that comes with salvation. Salvation is free, but it costs you your life, your entire life. You have to die to self, to your old self. You leave your old ways behind. And you follow Jesus. His ways are now your ways. But such people, they're not willing to give up their ways. And when their ways are imposed upon by following Jesus or by affliction or persecution, it's not really what they signed up for. So immediately they bail. Immediately they receive with joy, but just as fast, immediately, he says again, they're out of there. Such people still live for and serve themselves. And so it's no wonder that when their selves are imposed upon, they fall away. Third type of soil represents the divided heart. The divided heart. 
These people think Christianity sounds nice. It lead to a nice life, peaceful life, but but in the end they're still living for something else. It's not possible, however, to follow Jesus with 50% of your heart or even 99% of your heart. It's an all-or-nothing proposition. It doesn't mean we're perfect, but true believers are entirely sold out for the Lord, for following the Lord. Those with divided hearts, however, they're not. It's always something else or someone else that gets in the way of their undivided devotion to the Lord. The simple lesson with these is that if you let anything get in the way of following the Lord, you will never follow because there will always be something else to get in the way. And you look at these first three seeds and so far it's not looking so good for the seed. So far the seed has a pretty poor track record. But the parable ends on a good note. For lastly the seed finds the soil representing the good heart. This is the fourth type of soil, the good heart. God has tilled the soil of this person's heart so so that they are ready to hear and receive the word. Their response is not hardened, but accepting. It's not shallow, but deep. It's not divided, but devoted. These people truly accept the word of God. They truly become his disciples, and then they prove it. By bearing fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. Different Christians bear different fruit, but nonetheless, it's all good. And all throughout Scripture, this is the consistent mark of true discipleship everywhere. The, the mark, the evidence that you are a, a true disciple, bearing fruit. You're not saved by it, but it shows you have been saved. This is how Jesus can say, Matthew 7, verse 17, every good tree bears good fruit. Not three quarters, but every good tree bears good fruit. And how he says this in John 17 verse, or I'm sorry, John 15 verse 8. Christ said, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Thankfully, this parable ends on a high note that even amidst early failures, the seed finds good soil and bears an amazing harvest in the end. This is all what we covered last week in greater detail, the parable, its explanation, these four heart responses. The parable told and explained by Jesus. That, I think, in a good amount, gets us caught back up to speed. But even still, there's more than meets the eye with the parable. There's still a call to a deeper understanding of its significance. Like he says in verse 9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Hear what? What message is Jesus trying to get across? What, what point is he trying to make? What are we supposed to take away from this parable? That is yet to be fully seen. Now you may think, well, okay, he's telling this story and we get the explanation. And so it's a guy, he's trying to spread the word, the word of the kingdom, the gospel. And different people are going to respond differently. So at first you might think, well, evangelism. This parable must be about evangelism. Jesus must be teaching us how to evangelize, what to expect. We've got to get out there, sow the seed, find the good soil. The point Jesus is trying to make is all about personal evangelism. Is, Is that it? 
Well, let me say, there is a very valid application of this parable to personal evangelism. We're going to get there, actually. We're going to spend a lot of time with that. However, that's not quite it. Jesus is not simply giving an object lesson on personal evangelism here. There's something even more going on, even more significant. And if you want to get this, you've got to not only understand the parable, but the context, what's going on around this in the time. And if you don't get the context, you're going to sail right off the deep end and totally miss the boat on on this parable. And for instance, I've got to include this. Last week, after we did, you know, pass number one on the parable of the soils, someone came up to me after the service and showed me their notes in their study Bible and how it explained the parable and the parable's purpose. And it was the New Spirit-Filled Life Bible by Jack Hayford. And so I read this snippet of the study Bible, which explained the parable and its application. And it was just so striking, I had to just throw it in here. Can you guess what they made this parable all about? The the true meaning of the parable of the soils. It's all about money. It's all about money. The notes said that this parable teaches how we are responsible for planting seeds of faith through acts of giving. And we are responsible for selecting the right soil. So the lesson they drew from this parable is basically how to discern what ministries you should give your money to. First, they say that we must take charge of our giving. We must plant our seeds of faith through, through money, of course. Then, secondly, we must look for places where the Holy Spirit is at work, places alive with the Word of God, places where, quoting now, where spiritual results are found, where miracles, signs, and wonders confirm the preaching of the word. Plant your seeds of faith there, end quote. And when you do this, of course, you can re- expect a, a, a huge return on your investment, 30, 60, 100 fold. If you're not quite following what they're saying, here, here's the translation. Give them your money. <laughs> Give them your money. They somehow warped and twisted this parable into a lesson about giving your money to charismatic organizations. Which is very convenient, but I mean, can you believe that? This parable, I hope you can already tell yourself, but this parable has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with money. It's not even a distant application. It's not even like a reach. You you can't even get to money from this parable. It's a terrible mishandling of God's word. But ironically, they fulfill what Jesus says. Christ himself said that not everyone's going to understand this. And they prove it. They remove all doubt. Thankfully, the person who brought this to my attention himself understood it was about time for him to get a new study Bible. So he already, I didn't have to tell him. Anyway, the lesson of this parable, it's not money. That's not the point that he's making deep down. And it's not even evangelism. That's not the deep point he's making. It's related, but really, we want to get to the bottom of it. Now, if you're tracking with me, we're back up at 40,000 feet at this point. We started into all this last week. We ran out of time. But we're back in the air, and we want to discover what's really going on with this parable, with all the parables. What is their intended purpose, and what point is Jesus trying to make with them? Even with the explanation, we still wonder, well, what's the real point here? 
And to help us answer this, we're going to turn our attention now to the second question the disciples asked Jesus on that day. If you remember, after an afternoon of teaching parables, Jesus dismissed the crowd and he goes into a house alone. But he's not alone. The 12 disciples and some other people, they enter the house with him. And they ask him some questions. Because even they had not heard Jesus teach quite like this before. And so the first question they ask him is, what is the meaning of this parable? Specifically, the parable of the soils. And we've already answered that question. That was all last week. But they ask him a second question, like Matthew 13:10 says. They say, why do you speak to the crowds in parables? Why are you teaching in parables at all? Well, what, what's the point? And we want to answer this question now. This will really help us understand the parables more. And we find the answer back in verse 10. We skip these verses, but this is where Mark fast forwards us to the time where Jesus is alone in the house. And before he even gets around to explaining the parable of the soils, he says this. So let's start from verse 10 of Mark chapter 4. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. Stop there for a second. Catch that phrase. To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. Jesus is letting us know that the parables have a, a revealing function. They are revealing something. These aren't just simple folk tales he's telling. There are deeper spiritual truths embedded in them, and he calls these truths mysteries of the kingdom of God. Now first of all, what does he mean by mystery? Well, mystery in the New Testament sense, it's something, some truth previously unrevealed, but which must come by way of divine revelation. It's a truth you haven't known yet. You're not going to find it explicit in the Old Testament, but you're not going to stumble upon it naturally. It must be revealed to you. And that's what Jesus is doing with the parables. He's revealing to his disciples serious truths about God's kingdom. And that's our real subject matter. That, that clues us in already. What are the parables about? It's not money. It's not even quite personal evangelism. But more directly, the kingdom. The kingdom of God. That's, that's what they're about. These parables, including the parable of the soils, reveal something about the kingdom of God. So now we just need to stop for a second and ask, well, what, what is the kingdom of God? What, what does that mean? Are you familiar with that, that concept? Do you have a, a basic grasp on the kingdom? God's kingdom, it's one of the major threads running throughout the entire Bible. It's a huge topic, and so it can be very confusing. But just for now, let me boil it down with this. You can think of it this way. Very simply, God's kingdom is his rule over all creation. That's a simple way of putting it. God's kingdom is his rule over all creation. And ultimately, we know God rules over all. He is sovereign. He never loses his sovereignty. His kingdom is permanent. But think about this. In a real sense, after the fall, Satan has become the ruler of this world. Couldn't we say that? Jesus said that several times. He's the ruler of this world. And this, is all, this is all according to God's sovereign plan. We know that. But nonetheless, 
right now the exertion of God's rule over creation is thwarted. See, God is the king. The universe is his domain. We are his people. But after the fall, you could say that his kingdom is in disarray. Sin and Satan have led all to rebel against God's rule or God's kingdom. So if you get that from one angle, the entire story of the Bible then, it's the story of of the restoration of God's rightful rule over his creation. The restoration of God's rightful rule over his creation. I mean, just think, the first two chapters of the Bible, God is rightly ruling over his creation. The last two chapters of the Bible, God is once again, rightly ruling over his creation, but every chapter and verse in between. It it tells us the story of how God restores his kingdom rule. And this is what the Bible looks forward to when it talks about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God looks forward to that time when sin and Satan no longer rule, but God again expresses his rule over all creation. That's the kingdom of God. It's just like Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Remember that? The Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's the kingdom, God's rule exerted again. Now the Jews had high hopes for this kingdom because they're thinking we're going to have the best seats in the house. However, they emphasize all of the physical dimensions of this kingdom to the the neglect of the spiritual dimensions. They were looking for this messianic king who would come with a, a literal sword in his hand, who would kill the Romans, set up his rule, and rule the earth with Jerusalem at, at the center. That, that will happen. Jesus is that king, and he will rule. But they fail to understand that this messianic king must first be what? The suffering servant. He must first be the suffering servant. Jesus as Savior first had to die to redeem men. Otherwise, the kingdom would be empty. Nobody would be in the kingdom because we've all participated in rebellion against God's rule. So Jesus had to first suffer and die to defeat Satan and sin on the cross, enabling us to participate in the kingdom. We take this for granted because we learn from kids. Jesus died first and then he'll come to rule second. But this was new to them. This was shocking news to them. They were not expecting the king or the kingdom to come like this. Just think about this. Jesus comes and he's the king. In him, the kingdom of God, God's rule is revealed. God is going to mediate his rule over creation through Jesus, this this second Adam, the son of David. Only at the time, they saw Jesus as this lowly carpenter from the podunk town of Nazareth. Do you realize how crazy that sounds? That that takes faith to believe. I mean, this this, this is what you have to believe. Here's this guy. He's from nowhere. He's a nobody. He's not a ruler. He's not royalty. But we're we're supposed to believe that he's the son of God. He's the savior. He's the Messiah. And he's the king. That sounds crazy. And that's why many Jews thought he was crazy. 
It's like the famous C.S. Lewis argument about Jesus. His claims, Christ's claims, prove either one of three things about him. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, the King, God himself. So that just leads to one of three conclusions. Either he's Lord, or he's a liar, or he's a lunatic. Some think he's just lying through his teeth, trying to con people into following him, even though he wasn't after money or fame, but for some reason just lying to people. Or maybe he's a lunatic, just detached from reality, having a conversation with a wall, just a crazy person. But the problem with that is crazy liars, uh, I haven't really seen them open the eyes of the blind or restore missing limbs or heal people with leprosy just like that. They don't really teach clear truth with authority and they're not sinless. So hopefully you see the words and the works of Jesus. They testify very clearly that he's not crazy and he's not a liar. The conclusion is undeniable. He is Lord and Savior and King, and he brings the kingdom. Now, I know this is, this is a lot to, to think about, to handle, so let me just boil it down even further. We're talking about the mystery of the kingdom of God, God's rule. And, and here, here's the mystery at its essence. It's this, that God's rule and ruler comes in the form of this lowly car, carpenter from Nazareth. That's basically it. Jesus is the king. We take it for granted, but this this was shocking news to them. Jesus is the king. You can already tell this kingdom, it's, it's not going to come the way you would expect. To the Jews, he's saying, look, forget your swords, forget the Romans. This is something so much more significant. For a lot of the Jews at the time, this was a very big pill to swallow. It required something we call faith. To believe in. And for many it was just too much, so they spit it out. Even though the conclusion about Jesus was undeniable, they rejected him, they turned on him, later they killed him. But even that, though, was part of the mystery of the kingdom. This is, it's a really brilliant plan that even his rejection was part of the kingdom's plan. This actually gets us back now to the parable of the soils. Because in this parable, Jesus is primarily explaining the rejection of the kingdom. We're getting close. We said earlier that the primary subject matters of the parables is what? The kingdom of God. Jesus is revealing mysteries about the kingdom in these parables. And so what precisely is the parable of the soils revealing about the kingdom? And the answer is it's resistance. It's opposition. No Jew expected the kingdom to come and be resisted. Of course, they thought when the Messiah came, everyone would champion him and and cheer him on. It would be great. But no, the kingdom will first come and meet resistance and opposition and rejection. Remember, right before this, the Pharisees said that Jesus was possessed by Satan. How can that be? If he's the Messiah, how could the top leaders get him wrong. And the crowds weren't much better. They were unbelieving. This is not how the messianic king is supposed to be received. So so what what's going on? But the answer is yes it is. This is how 
the king is supposed to be received. Listen to this, Isaiah 53, verse 3. This is Old Testament, the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, verse 3 says, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. He was supposed to be rejected first. And Christ tells these parables because his disciples need to understand that the kingdom would first be met with opposition from top to bottom, from their level all the way up to his level. Not all seed would germinate. Not everyone's going to accept the kingdom or the king. But there will be a harvest. And that's the, the good news at the end. There will be a harvest. The good news is that the seed will find good soil, and when it does, it will produce a supernatural harvest. Even amidst resistance and opposition, the kingdom will grow. And that's good news. And that's it. That, that is the primary purpose of the parable of the soils. It's explaining Jesus, the king, and the kingdom he brings, and how it's going to be received. The kingdom rule of God comes in Jesus, and the parable of the soils lets us know how people are going to respond to him. The kingdom will be resisted, but there will be a harvest. Now at this point I have to say, I hope you didn't stay up too late last night. Because this is one of those messages you've got to be awake and alert for. I know that. I warned you last week, I told you, that our second pass through the parable of the soils is going to be heavier and meatier, and, and you were warned. We, we've got a little bit further to go, so let me give you another little recap to get your bearings here. We've got this sunny afternoon. Jesus is by the, the Sea of Galilee, and he starts teaching like he's never taught quite before in parables. And the first parable is the parable of the soils. The disciples later asked Jesus, hey, what does that mean? And why are you teaching in parables? And so far we've learned this, that one reason Jesus taught in parables was to reveal truths about the kingdom of God to his disciples in a simple yet profound way. And in this regard, the parable of the soils specifically reveals that the kingdom of God, which comes in Jesus, will be resisted and rejected and opposed by many, but there will be a great harvest in the end. Now, if you get all that, if you're, if you're tracking, you're in good shape. That's good. There's still a little bit more to learn here, though, because when Jesus, or rather when his disciples asked Jesus, why do you teach in parables? You've only covered the first half of his response. He said part of the reason is to reveal mysteries of the kingdom to his true disciples, but we're going to find out parables are like a double-edged sword. And another purpose was to conceal truth from his enemies. And we want to consider this now. So look again at verse 10. This is also found in verses 10 through 12. I want to finish with the second function of these parables. Verse 10, as soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, 
get everything in parables. So that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. Here, Jesus is saying that parables are like stained glass windows. From the inside, they look bright and beautiful and glorious. From the outside, they look dark and dull and meaningless. Or like one commentator put, they're like embroidery. On the front side, you have this beautiful pattern, but on the back side, it's just a tangled mess of knots. It's unintelligible. This is the double function of the parables. They're able to both reveal the truth and conceal the truth at the same time. To true disciples, those with faith, parables reveal great mysteries of the kingdom. But to enemies or false disciples, parables conceal and hide the truth from those without faith. But when you look closely at what Jesus says here, it it might strike you, especially his wording. Look again at verse 12. Look how he, he explains the reason for parables for outsiders. He's giving parables for outsiders so that, he says, verse 12, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. It's like, wait a second. Kind of sounds like Jesus is using parables to conceal truth from people in order that they will not be saved. Is that true? Is that possible? Can that be? What does he mean by this? You can tell we need to spend a little time here and get that one straight. So let's do that now. What does he mean by this, by this second function of the parables to conceal? Well, first, first things first, in verse 12, you have to understand Jesus is quoting a passage from Isaiah, and you've got to get that right to get What Jesus says right. It's from Isaiah 6, which is a very famous chapter. It's where Isaiah has a vision of the throne room of God. He sees God. He becomes God's messenger. God commissions Isaiah to go and preach to the people of Israel. However, God has already pronounced judgment on Israel for their great sin and apostasy and idolatry. They're going to be judged. So why is God sending Isaiah to preach to the people if they've already been sentenced and they're going to be judged? What's the point? What good is it for him to show them their sin and call them to God if the people are not going to repent? It sounds pointless, but it's not. The point is indictment. In this case, Isaiah's preaching takes on a double meaning. Because as he genuinely calls the people to turn to God and repent, as they reject him, it only confirms their unbelief and seals their judgment. It's in this context we find Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 10. That's the passage that Jesus quotes here, references here. Israel is so hardened in their own sin, they're not going to repent. But God sends Isaiah to them anyway to preach And as they reject, they just confirm their unbelief, they seal their own judgment, and they just prove they belong where they are. And now you can see, this is why Jesus references that passage, because his parables have the same function. Israel, at the time of Jesus, was wicked, 
and unbelieving. Don't take my word for it. That's Christ's own description of this generation. Right before this, even before the parable of the soils, we find Jesus condemning all of Israel. Already. It's only one year of ministry and he's already condemning the entire generation. He calls them what in Matthew 12? An evil and adulterous generation. They're worse than Nineveh. They're worse than Sodom and Gomorrah because they had the king and they rejected him. The scribes and the Pharisees, they've already gone way off the deep end in claiming Jesus is possessed by Satan. And the crowds, they're not much better. They may appear religious on the outside, but these people are very far from God. So when Jesus taught in parables, there was truth to be had. It's there. If you had faith in Jesus, you would receive the mysteries of the kingdom and you would draw close to God. We find this in his true disciples. At first, they didn't understand the parables either. But the difference is that they went to Jesus for an explanation. They sought him out in faith and they submitted to the truth. The crowds, however, do not care. They don't care to go to Jesus to find an explanation. They're not looking for a deeper meaning of the kingdom because they're not really seeking God or his kingdom. When Jesus taught, hey, the door was open. Just just walk right through and you'll get it all but they didn't even care enough to walk through the door. And when they did that, their response just confirmed, hey, you guys are outside, you belong there. You belong outside. Therefore, for them, Christ's parables, like Isaiah's preaching, only confirmed their unbelief and sealed their judgment. The people were responsible before God for their own hardness of heart, but through the parables, their hardened state was confirmed, and it's like the soil was packed down even more. It doesn't mean that those who are outside are being denied the possibility of ever believing. No. Jesus said again and again, hey, if you have ears to hear, hear, receive this teaching, believe. If they would only approach him in faith, they would receive the mysteries of the kingdom, but if not as such, they would be kept outside and kept in the dark, and the truth of God would be kept away from them. Again, I have to say, in all, it's pretty heavy stuff, the parable. It's real explanation in these verses. And I did warn you. You know, in a way, just about every Sunday school curriculum for kids has as one of the lessons the parable of the soils, which is kind of kind of funny. You know, it's a great lesson for kids. It has you know, birds and soil and seeds and a farmer. And it's just, you can make a good picture out of it. And in a way, it can be simplified for kids. But I think we all know there's only so much they can understand given their age. But truth be told, the same is true for adults. With with the parables and this parable, there's only so much you can understand. But the limiting factor, it's not your age. It's your faith. And this, this in the end here, this is the real takeaway from the parable. How do you respond to the parables? How do you respond to the parable giver? One of the great ironies with this parable is that every time it's retold, the parable, it's played out. It's played out again. Just in telling the parable, it's like you're the sower and you're sowing seed. And people are going to respond to you in the same way they responded to Jesus. Just like in his day, the word of the kingdom still separates people. The curious from the serious. Those looking for a religious sideshow 
from those who truly seek and want to know God. Tell the parable, it's going to split people in half and, and separate them. The parables, they sift the true from the false. They draw a person's faith or lack thereof to the surface. And that's the great challenge the parables confront us with even today. They force us to ask, do you have true faith? Do you? Mysteries of the kingdom, they're not natural. They're not simple. They're not normal. They're not expected. They're these rather radical things. So what do you make of them? Do you accept or reject? Jesus, this lowly carpenter from Nazareth, this Jew from 2,000 years ago, is the king. Do you accept or reject? And God's kingdom rule and kingdom is found in him alone. Do you accept or reject? And by believing in him and following him, being his disciple is the only way to be forgiven of your sins and be granted entrance into this kingdom. Do you accept or reject? To be saved, to be the good soil, you must accept these truths. It requires faith. There's only one way. Go through that door through faith. But he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's not always easy. Discipleship is not easy. It's called the narrow road. It's not called the easy road. Now, it's a good road. Christ's burden is light. His yoke is easy, but it's still not an easy road. You'll notice Jesus himself, he was not interested in making things easy for people. In this passage, he's not being very seeker sensitive. He's really not. What kind of teacher would give this very enigmatic lesson full of parables that no one can truly understand and then just wait around for those to come to him in faith to get the explanation? Who does that? Who would do that? But Jesus is not interested in in puffing up the crowds and making them feel good about themselves. He's not trying to confirm them all as Christians just because they showed up. Discipleship is hard. The gate is narrow. There are few who find it. So do you really seek him? And if so, prove it. Receive his words, not in hardness, but with open arms. Follow him, not shallowly, but wholeheartedly. And be devoted to him, not distractedly, but purely. Have faith in him, his person, his death, his resurrection. Then, bear much fruit, and so prove to be his disciple. This is the great takeaway of the parable of the soils. It's a call, it's a challenge to true faith, and you just can't fake it. It can't be faked. So now now that you have all that straight, now that you're all experts on the parable of the soils, we can finally now talk about evangelism. But we're not going to do that today. We're going to do that next time. Because it actually fits perfectly with what Jesus says right after this parable in verse 21, where he says this. Right after this, he says, he was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket. Is it? It's another parable. And we learn that Jesus, he's, he's the light of the world. And you know, he didn't come to be hidden. This is not a secret religion we're trying to run here. 
Although for a time he concealed his identity as king and his role as Messiah, after his death and resurrection, the mystery is out of the bag. It's not a mystery anymore. It's revealed. And it's meant to be spread. Now we are never commanded or advised to teach in parables or in an unclear manner. We want everyone to know. Like Isaiah, we are commissioned to just go and preach the clear gospel and to let the light shine. How will people respond? Well, the parable of the soils actually tells us in the same way they responded to the kingdom then, they'll respond to the kingdom now. There's a lot more to say in this regard. We'll save it for verses 21 through 25 next time. And for now, let me just encourage you to to meditate on, on what we've learned on these verses and receive the challenge and ask yourself, have you received the word? Do you have true faith? Do you follow? Are you the good soil? I pray that you are and that you bear much fruit and so prove to be his disciple. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are a worthy God, worthy to be praised. Your name is worth worship just for who you are, your character and your works. And we pray that your kingdom comes and that your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. This age has been given over to sin and Satan. And although that's part of your plan, it, we don't want to be a part of that in a, in a sense. We don't want to be given over to sin and Satan. And you, you seek to redeem us from that. Indeed, you've already given your son to conquer sin and Satan on the cross and to redeem yourself a people, a possession for your own name. And that's us. We thank you for that. We thank you for the mystery revealed to us. Lord, we are weak and feeble and and we don't have ears or eyes to see. Give us ears and eyes. And we thank you for the grace already given that we can grasp what we can already. But help us to see more and more. Not to just fill our heads, but to uh, infect our hearts and cause us to, to live rightly before you and to worship, to follow, to be true disciples, those with faith, those who bear fruit. It's a lot to learn, a lot to take in, Lord, but help us help us just to soak in in our lives and, and challenge us to be those of true faith, meaningful faith, meaningful worship, those who follow you now and forevermore. We look forward to learning more, but for now we just worship you now and always. Bless our week to come. In your name we pray. Amen.